International arms smuggling is one of those businesses that captures the imagination of authors and Hollywood producers alike, conjuring images of suave but savvy businessmen in sharply pressed suits sitting in cafes in some European resort town, hammering out three simultaneous interconnected deals on their satellite phone. Figures like this have and do exist, yet the illicit trade in arms is but a shadow of the defense contracting industry that supplies much of the world's major militaries with their weapons, the United States first among them, to then only be sold off at steep discounts to the secondary market, which inevitably finds its way to the hands of smaller nations, guerrilla armies, and those with a penchant for military hardware in a business or part of the world that demands they maintain an extra degree of finality in their stride. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm happy to be back with everybody this week. Hans, Hank, Adam, how are you guys doing? The boys are back in town. I'm doing pretty well, man. I'm at the library right now. <laughs> I am okay. Oh, that's good, guys. Um, I guess we'll come back to some you know, cheery... Uh, typical topics and we're going to talk about the arms trade and how it led to the slaughterhouse of the early 20th century and to start is i guess i'm going to be using i'll I'll first talk a little bit about the sources i'm working off of here because this is kind of old school american right type stuff in uh, i think it was 34 there's a book expose you know, long article, I guess you could say, written. I think it was published outside of a paper. Um, but it was it was written by two men, H.C. Engelbrecht and F.C. Uh, Hennigen. And the book was called The Merchants of Death. And that became a popular epitaph in the 1930s in the United States, particularly by American patriots, the you know, old American right, non-interventionists who did not want to see the United States get involved in another European slaughterhouse uh, to the detriment of Western civilization. And the book uh, is barely remembered, but it was it had some significant impact at the time because it, it definitely contributed to what would eventually be established in, you know, uh, 36, I believe it was, which was the Nye Committee. I think it ended, in th- I think it was 35 to 36. Uh, the Nye Committee's purpose was to investigate um, government contracts with arms dealers, you know, international connections with the arms industry and the extent to which that led to the American involvement in the first European war. So I will, as I said, be giving some quotes out of this book because as with many things written, you know, almost a hundred years ago, uh, they're better written. 
than a lot of the shit you see today. So I'm going to start out with sort of the give you a taste of they, they take a relatively neutral position. I mean, relatively, that is to say they uh, level position on it. But, you know, there's a lot of very damning things. So here we're. Let's start with this. Uh, For the business of placing all our vaunted science and engineering in the service of Mars and marketing armaments by the most unrestricted methods of modern salesmanship is indeed a thoroughly antisocial occupation. But they go on with skipping a bit to say, but the arms merchant does not see himself as a villain. According to his lights, he is simply a businessman who sells his wares under prevailing business practices. The uses to which his products are put and the results of his traffic are apparently no concern of his, no more than they are, for instance, of an automobile salesman. Thus, there are many naive statements of arms makers which show their complete indifference about anything related to the industry save its financial success. One British arms manufacturer, for instance, compared his enterprise to that of a house furnishing company, which went so far as to encourage matrimony to stimulate more purchases of house furnishings. The arms maker felt that he too was justified in promoting his own particular brand of business. Neither of these two points of view, the average man's accusation and the arms maker's defense is an adequate statement of the issues involved. One may be horrified by the activities of an industry which thrives on the greatest of human curses. Still, it is well to acknowledge that the arms industry did not create the war system. On the contrary, the war system created the arms industry. And our civilization, which, however reluctantly recognizes war as the final arbiter in international disputes, is also responsible for the existence of the arms maker. Well, that settles that. <laughs> Next show. Morning, See you yeah, I, uh, yesterday I was at a, um, an art museum. So just kind of trying to take a day to relax and enjoy some fine art. Um, but there were several pieces of art. Uh, actually, have Ulysses S. Grant, the, uh, the infamous Civil War general and uh, later president of the United States. And uh, they had several plaques talking about the history of Grant. And um, one of the things they noticed that I had that I had read before, but it, it actually brought it back to my memory, was that Grant uh, is somewhat, some, in many ways, responsible after post-Civil War America towards the beginning of, uh, I guess, the second industrial revolution in the United States and uh, really the, the creation of what would become the foundations for the America which we now live in. Uh, he, he, in particular, and many of uh, his friends who were unionist officials uh, during the war, later on in the 1870s, uh, intertwined the United States government, the federal level and the Department of War with uh, arms manufacturers. And he actually became infamous and sort of had a disgraced presidency at the time. I think a lot of it's been sort of forgotten. At the time, he was uh, he left in a very sour note because uh, it was revealed how deeply corrupt he had made the, uh, the the federal government and its arms control practices and its arms purchasing practices. And I think now we just take it as a given that the United States is the U.S. government contracts very deeply with. Um, arms manufacturers, private arms manufacturers, but at the time it was seen, um, it was seen as uh, very, very untoward and, and dangerous by most of the public and most of the government as well were um, quite taken aback by a grand silent transformation of you know, U.S. policy towards its own arms manufacturers. And I think that that was around the time when we really also began to export American power, American industry, 
and a lot of that came with the exportation of uh, American arms. And yeah, well, uh, not, just, not just small firearms, but you know, just general war materials became a very, very large industry. It was whole one of the natural sort of. suspicions of private arms manufacturers is just the fact that they're they're capitalists and they will sell to both sides of the conflict. Right. And right. in the 20th century in America, the major, I mean, the early days, what you needed, and this is what DuPont made its money on, was powder, right? This was, in the early days, it was for hunting and for blasting, really. And that started to change when uh, you had various wars that were, I mean, in the case, so for example, in the Mexican, in DuPont, to their credit, I mean, you had several DuPonts uh, throughout the, you know, 19th century uh, in the in the dynasty, but I believe as the second who is Alfred, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he, he refused to sell uh, uh, a munitions powder to Mexico because if you remember, of course, the North. I mean, this is in the Mexican American War. Yeah, James K. Polk, who was a, was a Southerner, and there was a lot of suspicion among you know the Northeast. The old, the old Northeast families and the general politics of the Northeast as to the nature of the war being a, a way to expand the slave states. Right? So right. it was such, such to the point where you had a lot of prominent people in the Northeast uh, wishing that the Mexicans would win the war, you know, basically wishing that American soldiers would be killed and uh, that it's all for the better because it was a it was a basically a slave a slave a slave state conspiracy. So he, he actually wrote um, to, he said, however unjust our proceedings may be and however shameful our invasion of Mexican territory, we cannot make powder to be used against our own country. Uh, and then similarly, in the Civil War, uh, he refused to supply to the South, which, you know, being a Unionist himself, uh, he was, this is, they wrote to him, the secessionist after Sumter. And his response was, uh, with regard to Colonel Dimock's order, we would remark that since the inauguration of the war at Charleston, the posture of national affairs is critical and the new state of affairs has arisen. Presuming that Virginia will do her whole duty in this great emergency and will be loyal to the Union, we shall prepare the powder. But with the understanding that should general uh, expectation be disappointed and Virginia, by any misfortune, assume an attitude hostile to the United States, we shall be absolved from any obligation to furnish that order. Uh, so... He wasn't quite as, I mean, he had his loyalties. I guess our Southern listeners would, you know, uh, have a different perspective on that. But he was loyal to to what he came from, which was the Union. Uh, however, in the Crimean War, they, of course, DuPont did supply to, you know, England and France and Turkey as well as Russia because fuck them. <laughs> There's a few instances that are similar to that. I mean, uh, going into the, the Spanish-American War in the turn of the 20th century, uh, and what's what, and a lot of the more honest, it's you know, it seems like that there's this process where it takes a very long time for the real histories of these conflicts and the deep histories to be uh, released and to be understood. And often it goes without much fanfare. So the average public doesn't really understand it. But uh, all the readings I've done of the Spanish American War, and, and even uh, Dan Carlin did a great show called Just American Peril about this period, that you know, up leading up to that war. The arms manufacturers of the country and, and you know, every, people who manufactured Band-Aids and manufactured uh, oil for early, you know, mechanized vehicles and, and for, uh, you know, industrial parts and for ships 
and obviously weapons and, and all kinds of other war materials uh, and industrial war materials uh, had had been you know basically amping production up for two or three years prior. There was a general expectation that we would get involved, that you know Cuba and the Philippines and possibly other territories would be you know acquired by the United States. And this was this was the kind of tremendous pressure that McKinley, who was president at the time, was facing. Uh, who you know mysterious kind of died under suspicious circumstances, um, allowing Teddy Roosevelt to you know whole, wholeheartedly endorse this uh, long-running uh, pressure campaign by these people to get involved in the war. He you know even before McKinley died, he basically started the war, although he had the balls to go get involved in it himself and fight on the front lines. Uh, there there was a, there was a real attempt to amp up production in anticipation of demand and then pressure for the demand either and this yeah, this, yeah. Kind of this dynamic would carry through to world war one one there's just a historical fact i remember learning that almost nearly all the barbed wire which became very popular and a lot of the tools that um and uh, even improvised tools uh, that were created and manufactured to deal with barbed wire as well were sold to both sides of the, of the early war, war in World War One to both the, to the German Empire and to the French and the British. Yeah, and, as a general uh, principle, in peacetime, the restrictions don't set in. So even if people are, you know, some aware more than others that a conflict is coming, uh, then it's still, you know, perfectly all right to sell to whomever. Right. Uh, and and then there's games you can play with that where if there's, you know, you have two neighbors who are, you know, for whatever reason, you have ethnic hostilities or something. Once you sell to one, you're actually also increasing uh, the tension. Correct. And so this is where the arms merchants can really start to manipulate foreign policy in a general and, sense. You know, there was there was this whole industry just around the subject of barbed wire and other uh, elements of trench warfare that were becoming very prominent and it was all coming from the United States uh, and, and like at one point they were even there, there was even consult I guess you could call them consulting services or, or you know they would send over uh, military advisors who were basically uh, employees of these various arms contractors and it used to be a much more diffused um, decentralized industry at the time but they sent over people to then advise to both do kind of a uh, sales tactic, but also advise on the use of these tools to both sides. So you had American military, quasi-military advisors who were really private employees, uh, you know, inside Germany and inside uh, on the on the front lines in France, advising both militaries on the use of these uh, these materials and tools. Uh, the the only thing that I, that was kind of interesting around this time period was that the average citizen could still purchase this stuff. You can still buy barbed wire now, but you at the time you could you could purchase a light artillery if you had money. You could basically go to one of these arms manufacturers, just say, "Hey, here's the money in cash. Uh, I would like to or bonds or you know however you're going to pay for it." Uh, and you could say, "Hey, I would like to purchase that," and they would keep, they'd give it to you. There, there was a great story in the early days of women's suffrage. Some German immigrant bar owner, uh, women's suffrage movement got tied up with prohibition very quickly. And like these women suffragists were going around uh, trying to burn down bars and attacking bar owners. 
And uh, this German immigrant bar owner wheeled a cannon up to the door. He owned a cannon and he, he bought it for some reason. He had this and he wheeled it up to the, to the door of his saloon and basically threatened to blow apart this whole group of women. Based. Yeah, the uh, New York Times uh, during the New York City draft riots had a privately owned Gatling gun in the basement yeah. that they used to uh, threaten rioters with. And, you know, during, like it was so common. Uh, and I think a, a lot of the early firearms, small firearms restrictions uh, didn't come into place until I want to say like you started seeing them in the 30s when you had a lot of like the gangster like the infamous sort of bank robbers and gangsters of the era that weren't you know ethnic gangsters that were guys like uh the ones the fbis were chasing baby face nelson and john dillinger they had you know basically military weapons that they privately bought they didn't steal them they, they just flat out bought them uh yeah some of them were modified um yeah. there's some interesting historical Gun autism. They well, had, let's, let's, apparently, they had like an open bolt, a full auto 1911, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, as as fucking absurd. But the, let's close. Let me close out with Dupont, and then let's let's talk about the great American contributions to the small arms. Uh, I would just, as far as Dupont goes, uh, they controlled by 1905 all the orders for ordnance powder. It was a total monopoly, and then they were able to, you know, engage in the uh, obligatory price fixing and then you had some troubles with Sherman uh, but that was resolved pretty easily because they ended up just buying out um, everybody who the, there were like two the government that the suit against DuPont uh, under Sherman antitrust was re, did result in I think like two firms that were created that also produced powder but they're insignificant compared to DuPont um, now as for so the small arms, uh, we have, this is one of the things that Americans can be very proud of. You have um, uh, the great Samuel Colt, uh, Peba, as well as Remington and Winchester. And Colt, you know, Colt had a lot of trouble initially even getting a government contract. And part of the way he was able to do it was on the, the border struggles against the Indians. Because it, with the Texas Rangers, they were able to see the value in in the uh, in the revolver, and this this was something that eventually trickled back up, and he was able to start getting government contracts. But you have similar sh- stories with uh, Remington and Winchester. Hank, do you do you want to add it into? I mean, obviously, this is a big moment in firearms of where you have the industrial production process, where you have interchangeable yeah, I mean, parts. Not, it's not just uh, just firearms that this was occurring in. This was the first uh, time in human history where you're able to actually do a large-scale, accurate, repeatable machining operations on arbitrary hunks of metal. So, I mean, this is contemporary with things like the development of the steam locomotive, uh, with the development of very various uh, machine tools themselves, the first uh, real uh, kind of reproducible um, engines that you could use for uh, all sorts of things. And firearms are just sort of a, a natural... Um, consequence of that and particularly in the world of kind of uh, patent manufacture you had a lot of uh, cross spread of ideas from one continent to the other you had um, various you know subcontracting arrangements and then in the context of an actual war uh, you had a lot of uh, kind of 
um, very Darwinian uh, evolution of these things, um, particularly, uh, for instance, in the Spanish-American War, the U.S. obviously won that conflict very handily um, with their uh, single shot. Uh, I think they were still using like trapdoor, uh, trapdoor single shot rifles of some sort. The Spanish had uh, relatively modern, uh, even by contemporary standards for what it is, uh, Spanish Mausers, and the U.S. was so uh, impressed with that uh, sort of. Uh, technology variant, the magazine fell, magazine-fed repeating rifle, that there was an entire uh, development push by the United States. Well, that, that weapon was instrumental in opening up the frontier. I mean, it was, I think it was like the gun that won the West, if, if I'm not well, mistaken. Well, that's the lever action. Yeah. Uh, lever action. Win- Winchester the, the action. Yeah, the, it, so uh, we don't really need to go into too many of the technical details. There's different we're, ways. We're not forgotten like, weapons. Yeah, which is an excellent forgotten weapons and uh, C and arsenal uh, are both really, particularly the latter, is really great if you want some of the uh, the history of the development of some of these things. But suffice to say that basically everywhere the technology was advancing fairly rapidly, and then as you had smokeless powder towards the end of the. Uh, the end of the 1800s. Also DuPont to thank for that. Right. I mean, that's that's such a major advancement. And then coincident with, I mean, the reason why um, small arms are interesting to people as a technology, just like from a uh, engineering perspective, is because they link up um, the chemistry of the smokeless powder, the production uh, methods that allow you to have repeatable production, the uh, the metallurgy of these things. Like if you like, it's not easy to make something not explode when you have seventy thousand pounds per square inch of pressure on it. Like in a bang, that's you know, that's uh, that's extremely difficult. And then to do that for thousands of rounds at a time when it's hot, when it's cold when the thing is maybe a little bit rusty, like loading something from a magazine is non-trivial. And all of these things were kind of going through this genetic evolution process where you had different uh, designers with different ideas encountering each other, being combined in weird ways, uh, kind of suffering the the trial of a uh, combat and then, you know, iterating on towards basically right now it's at stasis since the uh let me ask you a question that, uh let me add something in here quick adam there's something to be said about the arms trade itself in the process that hank described when you had these rapid developments what ended up happening was you had a very uh how would you say a high obsolescence rate right so these arms that were now there was a very quickly there was a superior model well what do you do with those well, you offload them into the various extended colonies of Europe or to the Turks, etc. I mean, this is where you had a rapid spread of the small arms with the, ob- the increasingly obsolescent models being exported. Yeah. That goes on today. That, that's a huge factor in the, the resale mill SERP market and makes up, I think, the majority of the private arms dealers' business because basically the military wants to for its own reasons, because it can justify its own budgets, its own power. Yeah, it they're not even technologically money. obsolete. They're just 
they give they get a new contract right and they're they're great weapons still i mean look at the a10 they're trying to phase that out and if those are allowed to be sold on the third market i mean who knows you know where where they could end up that could be I'd a fascinating movie absolutely but yeah that that's a that's a long standing practice of the military industrial complex is to get rid of the last year's model so they can justify buying a new one and then that stuff ends up on wholesale markets and then it's just flooding the third world but we can, we can talk about that later it's important that you use like this is something that comes up that's even in our bumper intro of military industrial complex and the, this is how it was born in a lot of ways because as the 20th century approached you had an increasingly tight partnership with the government but it's still private public partnership as well as intertwined into these international very international uh, financial board of directors so it the one thing like for example we'll get into this i guess a little bit later is w one of the goals of the nice committee and one of the the interests of the uh, america first people was to see a nationalization of the arms trade in the united states because you know what was it a uh, Primo de Rivera, who said the rich have no nation, as we'll get into this more. It's <laughs> you see this with the uh, it's very you had DuPont, for example, was relatively scrupulous as far as he had his allegiance, and that was to the Union to the Northeast. And he, well, I, it's not just a he, but the, the whole family itself managed to maintain this line, right? And uh, as other players get involved, uh, you get a lot less of that, you have a lot more. Uh, a lot of opportunities for treason in this field. I, if you I want to, want to uh, briefly, I'm going to plug this please. book now so I don't uh, forget to do it later. But uh, if this topic interests you at all, uh, check out The Arms of Krupp. It's a great oh, book. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like 50 years old now, so you can find uh, used copies long, for right? nothing. It's yeah. extremely long. It's great, though. Yeah, yeah, Krupp we could talk about a lot, too. I, I think I... I'll have a few things to say, but it's. I wanted to focus a little bit more on the United States, but Krupp. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Krupp revolutionized everything in, in Germany. So while we're still in the U.S., let me ask my question. Uh, I was going to ask, and if I get a chance, I'll ask another one. But we were talking about the U.S. small arms industry and the development of the technologies and the rapid advances being made. Uh, one thing that I do remember from grade school and it was tied to the arms industry was they kept telling me that uh, United States American manufacturing was revolutionary in the introduction of interchangeable parts and that was basically coming from you know weapons and so if you're out in the field and your uh, I don't know your trigger breaks you know you can you can go and find one that'll it's basically it just slots into the uh, the weapon that you were just using that was cult yeah that, that, that doesn't cult. happen in practice though <laughs> no, I mean, that, that makes your but... arsenal more efficient but if if something breaks then it goes back to at minimum the armorer mm -hmm. which is you know back at uh some depending on how their armed forces are laid out their um headquarters maybe divisional headquarters maybe something above or below that or if it's like really fucked up bad, like the barrel is exploded or something, then it either okay. gets trashed or it goes back to the arsenal. Okay. Well, my question was, though, <clears throat> presuming that that's a concept that actually happened, why was it the United States that developed that? I mean, I have my own theories, but... Well, it was know. a concept that actually happened, and it was Colt that, Colt that pioneered it. So do you, yeah, why, why do you it, think it, it happened it, in the United States versus uh, in one of the so, European so inter places? Interchangeable parts are a little bit of a meme. Uh, because you don't actually have like interchangeable parts per se. 
you have a design that accommodates parts that fall inside of a certain specification. So if you have a, uh, if you have any machine, like you just want to cut a slot in a piece of bar stock and you just do that over and over and over and over again, if you measure all of those slots, you're going to see not just a normal distribution um, because the machine is vibrating. The bar stock itself has slight variations in hardness. So as you cut this slot, it's going to vibrate a little bit more or less, and it's going to cut a deeper or wider channel. You're also going to see your tooling wear out at a certain rate. So like your actual drill bit will shrink a little bit. It'll get dull, or you can have the opposite actually happen under some circumstances. It can get dull, it gets hot, and it actually ends up boring a bigger hole or more erratic hole or whatever. And it's, you know, it's, if you have a, a good design process, these things are accommodatable because you know, if I'm running my assembly line, this tool, I replace every this thousand many uh, items, anything really from cars to firearms, washing machines. And if I do all this and I replace my tooling at a certain rate and I'm measuring things and every time I see a certain trend in these things, then I'll have a you know one in however many failure rate. This sounds complicated and it actually is complicated. Uh, the The idea that like, interchangeable parts are like oh i have a great idea let's make sure all of our parts are the same that's always the goal the question is how do you get there and that's a process there wasn't a guy that like came up with that idea um you have a, a prediction a particular production line and uh a process and design that allows that to be achieved yeah this is this is all uh, good content. I just the thing is though, it was Colt who sold the U.S. government on the concept. Uh, it, regardless of how neatly the concept fits in with reality, it was mm -hmm. uh, something that was pushed, especially by Samuel Colt. Well, that that relates to my other question with regard to military contracting to the government specifically as almost like their primary business. Uh, obviously, companies today like Lockheed are basically just entirely government contractors they have next to no civilian contracting i'm sure there's like some weird division that does a few million but it's it's an order of magnitude greater for the government and they're obviously companies that do both but it seems like to me after the civil war things really ramped up and you know maybe you guys can adjust the timeline depending on what you think but where has this sort of business evolved from and where is it now versus well, then? That's as I mentioned, Adam, it was like by the early 20th century, DuPont had total monopoly on uh, powder. And that was because of its the profits that they were able to make mm -hmm. in dealing in getting those U.S. government contracts. So why, um, why did that happen? The, why did that evolve from where it was before? Well, Presumably, I mean, they, they pioneered kind of the like, industry. I mean, they, well, they were... The, I mean, there were other companies. It wasn't just powder. You know, yeah, but they were the best. You know, I think I mean, what I think what Adam is asking is is basically why did this phenomena occur? Where we had a, a shift from sort of just what we would call arms manufacturers to mm -hmm. defense contracts. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly, basically yes, what you're asking. Yes, exactly. And scale, 
yeah, scale. Yeah. I think economies of scale at a basic level is really what's going on here. But well, I, there's okay. I, let, well, me, let me I, let me say. I oh, think sorry. That, yeah, please, Hans, go ahead. I, I think that on on some other level, um, there was a there was a a real shift in in the country that, that you have to really look at how the U.S. developed as a country, and then kind of reverse your way back to well, why did this happen? Why did we go from arms manufacturing? Yeah to professional defense contractors. And part of that so, has to do with the country became a, a urbanized, very complicated sort of hodgepodge place. And there was, I think, a real understanding that we need to start, A, shifting away from having civilians at an equal level with the government and B, and having parity. And B, we are on, on embarking in an attempt to build a larger sphere of influence. We're building an empire, basically. The only way to accomplish that is to create a professional military class and also create a professional supply chain for that military class. So the United States basically looked at how the European empires were operating, and they had exclusive arms manufacturers. Britain, France, the Russian Empire, in the Ottoman Turks around this time all had, even Japan, had a, a system wherein there were, there were uh, companies, if you want to call them that, um, that only worked with the government, that had special charters, that had special arrangements. And the U.S. basically decided to model themselves partially off of that. So that's why. But I think also part of it was that, uh, you know, by the 30s, the country was, I'm not, you know, like, literally unfolding. It was it was falling apart at the seams, and I think there was a real attempt to also uh, remove this parity that the average person or groups of people or even states, individual states might have, or collections of states might have, uh, to be able to buy arms independently, to be able to contract with companies without federal government oversight, and potentially, you know, they could be looking at another civil war scenario. It could be just looking at rampant crime. You could be looking at this, you know, what we're seeing of early signs of just sort of this uh, general weirdness. There's, there's, there's a, there's, we're getting some weird people by the turn of the 20th century who want to do some weird things. We're talking about blowing stuff up, who are blowing stuff up. And if enough of them got enough money together, they could buy a piece of light artillery from an arms manufacturer and bomb out a, a government building on a whim. It was totally plausible at the time. It was just a matter of money and logistics. Or like so, more realistically, take over Guatemala. Right. I mean, so the, the, the reasons were basically, you know, internal control, you know, building of an empire and trying to formalize and harmonize a process of getting uh, weapons uh, consistently, not from a manufacturing standpoint, but just from a purely process standpoint to military, which would then use them foreign policy this that okay. was like the real so, reason why we shifted from the comparison to defense companies. this is a good compare and contrast that can be done here with respect to the countries hans mentioned and the dynamics of work because there's something inherently political in this industry and when you talk about so talk about the board of directors for these these types of uh, firms and what you see you have to deal because you're dealing first of all with government contracts and the military uh, so you need certain types of people to, you know, be the face of that and to deal with that. And you're dealing with other countries as well. So in each country, what you see in the ones Hans mentioned, I'm not going to talk about Russia, but uh, 
you see a kind of a reflection of the nature of that state and of the power elite in that country. So this is, uh, I'm going to be reading here, but in Great Britain, they chose their directors from the nobility and from members of parliament, the army or the admiralty. These names will aid them in securing business, establishing a front of respectability and in silencing criticism. In France, the armament makers boards are made up of largely great industrialists and bankers. All these maintain very close relationships with important members of the Chamber of Deputies. Many French political leaders are outstanding corporation lawyers, and this makes tie between arms makers and their best customer even closer. Now, in the United States, the banker is the all-important person in industry. Hence, while few cases are known where an important government official or a member of Congress has been a director of an armament firm, all arms makers have important financial connections. In the Morgan Group will be found the DuPont Company, the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, the U.S. Steel Corporation, together with copper, oil, electrical appliances, locomotive, telephone, telegraph interests. This tie-up also leads over into the great banks, including National City, Corn Exchange, Chase National, etc. It is the Morgan Group of corporation clients and banks which dominate the American arms industry. Okay, now keep that in mind when you talk about entry into the First World War, because the Morgan uh, the Morgan interests also controlled a very large portion of the American media apparatus. And there was an, a natural process, too, which I had mentioned, which is the internationalization of this. So, yeah, the Harvey United Steel Company was governed by a board made up of Germans, Englishmen, Americans, Frenchmen, Italians. The Lanza Company of Switzerland was German-owned but had French, Austrian, Italian, and German directors. Diligent, a German firm, had German and French directors. The Whitehead Torpedo Company had French, British, and Hungarian directors. And this is a very good quote that you don't uh, see for modern American right. But uh, thus, the great, ina- the great international, which political idealists and labor strategists have sought for so long, was actually taking shape in the armaments industry. So... And you'll see this also in the Nye Commission because the two people, the victory, because the Nye Commission basically failed to put the hammer down. It had some success in kind of paving the way for neutrality, the various neutrality acts that were attempted in the mid-30s. But the two people who had the great victory were, of course, the communists and the Morgans, which, surprise, surprise, you know. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit later because there's some interesting things happening there. But uh, I suppose we talk, talk about the war now. Unless you guys have anything to add to that. Adam, does that help you at all? Yeah, I think so. I, my, my personal theory was, I mean, I, I think what you guys said made a lot of sense. But my summary theory is that the country was no longer a wellspring of expansion. And it was basically moving into consolidation mode. So in other words, the frontier, which required effectively a bunch of proxy warriors in the form of homesteaders and people going out on horses with rifles under their arms shooting Indians. Uh, the, the policy, the government policy of the time, the industry or the, uh, the elite policy was to have these homesteaders out there well-armed and expanding the frontier of the nation. Once the frontier closed, however, the elite, I think, could see more benefit in consolidating the management of weaponry because those former cowboys who are fighting the Indians and the Indians are gone are now the threat to the power elite. So they need to disarm them and start moving it into a more professional force. That's kind of how I saw it. Let me go through some. So in the, in the war, 
what you saw is a lot because Hans, I think it was, was talking earlier about how in peacetime you'll have kind of a free for all with the arms trade. And some countries had it, I guess, the irony cut a little deeper than another. So, I mean, if anyone needs any reminder of the European Holocaust, it was, you know, yeah, 27 different countries, some of which are non-European, yes, but you had a total of somewhere around, it, the number seems to change every year, but the casualty number uh, is around 40 million, right? And as far as the cost of that, I mean, this is in figures from an older time, so I actually won't even give that, but we won't get too far into the numbers. In fact, I'll put up, I'll have a few charts that are maybe somewhat outdated, but I'll put them up uh, on the slideshow if any of you are watching that, that uh, you can take a look at the profit, uh, the numbers of the profiteers. But in, in general, let's go through some of the twisted ironies of the sad tragedy of that war. So Germany and Great Britain had sold arms to basically everybody. Uh, France and Austria, close by, sold arms to pretty much everybody, but not quite everybody. So the Germans had armed Belgium, right? And the German army, uh, when they invaded Belgium, were being shot at with German guns. And they helped rearm Russia. So when the Germans were going to Russia, they were dealing with German cannons. And the Krupp armor plate had been supplied to basically everyone. Uh, so in every naval engagement that the Germans fought in, they had they were dealing with Krupp armor plates. Uh, they armed Italy. And... Uh, <laughs> When Italy, you know, joined with the Allies, so that's more German arms facing Germany. Uh, the British had uh, built basically entirely built the Turkish Navy, and so it was British mines and British cannons that's when they were doing the campaign against Turkey that they were running into. Uh, France armed most people, uh, so Italy and Bulgaria had the uh, French seventy-five millimeter gun. Uh, of course. Italy ended up fighting on the side of the Allies, but Bulgaria on the side of the Central Powers. Uh, Bulgaria and Romania had uh, also bought French armaments, so like small arms. And Austria-Hungary uh, had a Skoda factory, which was the one that was arming Russia. So again, the Austrians also encountered Austrian guns when uh, fighting the Russians. So that's the kind of thing that you saw happening in that war. Do you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, if you want to talk about the arms trade, I mean, there there was kind of this conceit um, when America was still neutral that, uh, you know, you could uh, go and procure American arms uh, as any of the belligerent uh, nations. Of course, you know, Anglo uh, naval superiority made it really only possible for the U.S. to arm the allies. Um, but you had a extremely interesting situation. I mean, if you want to talk about kind of the interface between the arms networks and the uh, older and more established uh, financial networks, if you're ramping up production to a war scale, that's an extremely capital-intensive enterprise. So you would have situations like, for instance, the, uh, the Russians uh, placed an order at, uh, I think, uh, three, um, two or three uh, American companies to produce Mosins, their, uh, uh, their standard uh, bolt-action rifle uh, in the First World War. And 
I think they, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, they placed an order for uh, about a million at uh, the one manufacturer and a couple of million at the other manufacturer. Production, for various reasons, never really got off the ground. But the whole thing was financed by consortiums of banks. And you can see what happens here because uh, I believe one of the contractors was uh, Remington. Um, pretty sure it was Remington. They purchased this gigantic uh, factory uh, that had been previously used for something else. Uh, and they built out this enormous production line. They were working with these uh, these Russian uh, uh, agents, essentially, um, like contract monitoring agents, guys sent over from the Russian army to monitor production, make sure everything was to spec. They didn't get along very well with them. Um, and so like they had to repeatedly delay production, delay production, delay production. Come 1917, there's a revolution in Russia. It becomes apparent that uh, these guys aren't going to get paid and the company looks like it's going to go bankrupt. So the United States government decides, hey, uh, it's pretty clear that we're going to be needing a lot of weapons really, really quickly. It's probably a really bad idea if one of our major arms manufacturers goes bankrupt. So they end up buying basically the entire rest of the stock, uh, filling uh, most of the rest of the contract uh, as a nice side effect, paying back the uh, bankers that had been financing the entire operation and you know everybody's uh, everybody's happy more or less but that's sort of a microcosm of how these things work you have a uh, foreign government that uh, contracts for some huge volume of production the u.s government sort of uh, implicitly or explicitly uh, backstops the entire thing in order to protect uh, my crucial strategic uh, defense uh, contractors uh, and uh, as a consequence, everybody ends up getting paid. Boom. Uh, so who gets paid and when do they get paid? There were, in 1918, after Armistice was signed, there were 21,000 new millionaires in America. Uh, DuPont stock had gone from $20 a share to $1,000 a share. People were saying that J.P. Morgan was said to have made more money in those two years than the either uh, no, not, not either, but then the elder Morgan had made his entire life. And it's Hank was quite correct that the United States supplied, entirely supplied the Allies. There was some money that was given to Germany. Uh, not really, I mean, there were some munition sales, I suppose, too, before the war. But you had the blockade, and the blockade was intensifying and also starving, you know, two million people in Berlin. Uh, and the definition of what war materials were were kept expanding, right? Because you had, I mean, basically anything can be a war material. <laughs> and many of them were actually, I mean, in the sense that you can make war materials out of various domestic goods, but you also need domestic goods to live. So out of, between 1914 and 1917, there were, you know, in that day's money, uh, $10,500,000,000 worth of goods were shipped out of America. And munitions were a huge part of this, obviously. Uh, exports in 1914 were around 40 million. 1915, you're getting up there to like 330 million. And then uh, in 1916, it was like billion, two, two million, or billion, three million, or whatever. 
So the Allies were buying uh, munitions in large, large quantities from the United States, but that included as well as, you know, powder and small arms. You had iron, steel, you know, explosives, cotton, wheat, copper, leather, brass, chemicals, automobiles, flour, wheat, uh, capital machinery, corn, horses, wire, as Hans was talking about, uh, shoes, railway cars, mules, barley, wool, tires, airplanes, motorcycles, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, 1916 was the year that the merchants of death and the uh, pig bankers made out probably the best. Uh, that was like the golden year. And it created, of course, a domestic shortage. So the American people were being squeezed. Uh, the bankers and the mer arms merchants were getting rich. And Europe was a giant fucking holocaust. So what ended up happening was people started getting these, you know, the rats started getting concerned that the Germans might win. And similarly, that the allies might not be able to repay the loans because by that time they had also like just announced like the, all these loans are going to be unsecured at this point. So, of course, everyone knows the United States enters the war in 1917. It's like April 6th, 1917. And it's uh, basically at that point, like that it was a necessary. It was because you could say in a certain sense at this point, the United States had entered the war economically, but it has to enter the war in, a, in an actual military capacity uh, to ensure that these economic interests are secured. And Morgan, as I had mentioned earlier, who was, you know, it was the, it was the Morgan trusts that were controlling the majority of the armaments industry. Uh, they also controlled the media. And so this is when you had the big propaganda push of, you know, you had uh, like 200 newspapers on behalf of the Morgan crusade into the war. And the, the, the Vancouver Sun ran with the headline war to death against all German people. I don't know if Morgan owned that, but you get the gist. That was basically the type of propaganda going on in the Anglosphere. Right. And the other side of that is that by entering the war in a physical, you know, military capacity, uh, the war merchants and the capitalists were able to obtain guarantees from the U.S. government of their credit to the Allies. And now the United States government is purchasing, you know, directly from them again as well. And this was around, you know, I mean, entered in 1917 and in April. And in uh, January of 1918, Bernard Baruch becomes the chairman of the War Industries Board. Okay. Weird how that works out. You know, the, the arched speculator Jew rises to the top of the war machine uh, and gets to preside over it for the rest of the war. Well, it was uh, Benjamin Friedman's contention that it was the Zionists in London and in America that got America to enter the war on behalf of the British, basically. And in doing so, they, they effectively sealed the fate of uh, the central powers because... Oh, yeah, that's... I'm not... Yeah, no, Adam, that's... Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not contending this is the only reason for the United States entry into the war, but this is a huge factor because sure. this was a total mobilization of all U.S. industry. So there were a lot of dogs in the fight who weren't just the rat mm -hmm. Jews. <clears throat> no, I totally agree. And, and to that extent, just one quick stat... The United States had, and look, same thing happened in the Second World War, uh, but the United States had roughly five times the productive capacity of Germany uh, around the, the time of the First World War. And so if you, again, just look at sheer numbers, there is almost no way you can defeat that. 
realistically. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't matter if your quality is two times as good. If you're up against five times the number of bullets, it's it's going to be a tough fight. So that that basically swung the war in the First World War as well as the second. Oh, and the other great contribution that was made by the United States during this time was the poison gas industry. And so Americans start getting in on that. And, you know, America had developed like 63 different kinds of poison gas. <laughs> and this was, of course, at the, the uh, Edgewood, Edgewood Arsenal. Uh, and they, it was about 800, pardon me, one second, <clears throat> 810 tons of, of poison gas every week, uh, which is a larger output than any of the other nations. France was doing like 385 tons, Britain 410, and Germany 210. So America supplied the bulk of the poison gas to uh, to Europe. Um, so there you go. Uh, that's really all I had to like these These things we're talking about, this is basically what would go on to be investigated by the Nye Committee, which... Uh, Nye Committee was set up by Gerald Nye, who was a North Dakota Republican senator. And uh, the idea was to, as I mentioned, I believe earlier in the program, just investigate the government contracts, war profiteering, as well as the distortions of American foreign policy. Uh, The consequences of it were little. I mean, basically, it it, it couldn't establish concerted conspiracy. Uh, so the Morgans, you know, they they got off and uh, they had some sort of political impact on the general sentiments of the, you know, America, America first of, of the non-interventionists of people who did not want to go to the second European war. Because mind you, this is this is in the mid 30s. So this is, you know, 15 years plus after the close of the first war. Uh, that being said, though, there was some interesting things that uh were going on there because in the night committee you had uh, none other than Alger Hiss as legal assistant to the committee who was appointed by Lee Pressman and I'm sure as everyone knows those are both Soviet agents so <laughs> this was this was something that uh, and this is yeah the conduit of, of uh, the spy ring going through like Harry Dexter White and then of course at You'd see this, like, why, why would Soviet agents be concerned about a thorough investigation of the international capitalists and the arms industry? Well, you have Harry Hopkins uh, with Lynn Lease, Harry Hopkins being in, a, they deny this. I mean, everyone will concede about Pressman and Hiss, and most, I think, will concede about uh, Harry Dexter White, but they still deny Harry Hopkins to be a Soviet agent. Uh, I, we had done many, probably two years ago or something now, we, we did a program about that but uh, so basically you had the the interests that were at stake and again i mean the sad tragedy of this time in america was you know, from the 30s there was still a, a fight to be had but by the 1950s we had lost this and there were there were good men who tried um, they were patriots and who understood the stakes and they tried to 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 keep america out of this and to to wrest america from the clutches of the of the of the rats and they were sabotaged throughout. I mean, the fix was in, and it was a fix by both the communists and by the capitalists. Weird how that works. I mean, fundamentally, you're going to end up with a arms industry if you are maintaining any sort of standing army. 
Well, the the goal of the the night, one of the goals of America First and the night committee was to see a nationalization of it. Right. I mean, that just turns you into the arsenal system, which, you know, historically, um, a lot of countries, including the U.S. I mean, the U.S. Uh, was running uh, the uh, the Springfield uh, arsenal, uh, not to be confused with the contemporary uh, company Springfield Armory. It's completely different. Um, but they were running that uh, until the uh, I think Robert McNamara shut them down in the uh, the mid '60s. It was just a matter of okay, well, if you're going to have this philosophy of we're going to have a small peacetime military and then we're going to ramp up, I mean that's fine for kind of prototyping designs and doing baseline levels of manufacture. But once you get to the point where you're scaling up, you're going to end up spending some money. That's just unavoidable. And at that point, there's sort of a constituency because you need to make sure that you're actually able to scale up. So you need all these companies to kind of constitute your industrial manufacturing base. And as these designs get more complicated and as you need just different kinds of stuff, I mean, we've been focusing a lot on uh, small arms per se, but that's just a a tiny, tiny bit of the amount of money that the U.S. government spends on everything from from cloth for uniforms to uh, vehicles, not even armor, just you know, utility vehicles. Just, I need a truck. How much was that famous toilet seat the Air Force ordered? It was like in the tens of thousands. Of yeah, dollars. I mean, and and a lot of that is a lot of that is like it's a byproduct of these of the contracting policies that are theoretically designed to make sure that you don't overpay. So you have very rigorous rules about how to calculate prices for integrated systems. So it's like okay. It, if you want to sell a a hat to the United States government, it's not just a hat. It's it's like a you know a, a head protecting system. <laughs> you, it's it's like an integrated thing. The one in the F thirty five costs about a million dollars. Yeah, I mean it'll like they'll specify specifications that it has to meet, and you'll have a bunch of different parts, and those will be integrated. And there will be separate contracts for uh, follow-up work. Like, okay, so in the the submarine thing, that wasn't just a toilet seat for the office. This is on a nuclear submarine. So, you know, literally the thing can't squeak when you lower it. Because then people will die. (laughs) You have to certify where the parts are coming from. You have to provide documentation about the entire supply chain, practically back to the iron ore for the thing. You can't just pull one off the shelf if you want to like have extra that are uh, sort of beyond the the initial delivery of the the contract. Then like you have to actually maintain the capacity to produce them, or you need to pay for a bunch of them to be produced up front. 
Like this isn't this isn't some shit that you can just go down Home Depot and get. Uh, this is you know it's a it's a component of a very expensive piece of military hardware. I mean, it would not be the first time that literally a submarine was lost because the toilet malfunctioned. That happened. It happened to the Germans, but uh, it's it's happened before. So I mean, ridiculous hyperbole aside, this is this is just a very complicated. Um, uh, problem. How do you make sure that you don't overpay, that you get the thing that you actually need as opposed to the thing that somebody thinks is cool um, or increases their employment prospects uh, after the fulfillment of the contract? It's, it's a problem that no uh, country really has been able to solve because uh, the the individual contribution of a particular military contract, unless it's something that can fail very graphically, like your rifle explodes or your bandage uh, doesn't stop blood or your shoes fall apart or something. But once you get into, okay, you know, there, there's a lot of specifications for paint because paint stops rust and rust kills machines and dead machines kill people. So, you know, how do you make sure that you're not, quote unquote, overpaying for the paints? It's like, well, it's certified down to the last detail. And that's expensive if you're going to spec it down to the last detail because you care about the last detail. So, I mean, there are better and worse ways to do things. But I don't think that any country has figured out how to, you know, quote unquote, do things on the cheap. Wherever you go, you're going to find a company in the defense market that's making a lot of money that's the bottom line that's all well and good yeah these are very fair points my contention though is the political side of it which is just these people tied in with the bankers who do not have who are not beholden to the interests of the country I mean, people like Morgan Warburg Schiff I mean these oh, people yeah. should have all been so processed that's an interesting aid to the USSR and the Bolshevik Revolution, just as they so, should have been prosecuted for profiting off of a European war. Once you go beyond sort of the um, the level of, I would like to buy this thing, I go to a company that sells the thing, I spec the thing, I buy the thing, maybe overpay, maybe underpay. Once you start getting into the notion of arms, exports, and imports as a political tool, the system gets a lot more... Um, interesting and obviously malign so there's a fun uh <laughs> there's a fun branch uh or agency i guess uh of the uh, department of defense called the defense security cooperation agency and they have a i don't know what it's like to work at this place i imagine pretty soul crushing because their job is basically uh, if you want to buy uh, like a, a missile or a bunch of uh, a bunch of small arms of some sort or you know medical bandages, um, those might or might not be controlled. But anything that falls under ITAR, basically, you don't just go to Lockheed and say, "Hey, I'd like to buy some missiles," and they sell you the missiles and send them over. You go to this U.S. government agency. And they're essentially agents of the arms manufacturer. 
you actually place your order with the Defense Security Assistance Agency. They charge a 3.8% uh, markup uh, to cover their costs. They pass along your order uh, to the manufacturer um, after certifying that you know there's the proper end user certificates in place and that uh, you've covered the uh, the maintenance costs and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, basically, you know they're they're literally sales agents of the U.S. military industrial complex. So, for instance, when you get um, a you know some random uh, government grant as a uh, you know Antigua or something, you know you get a hundred thousand dollar grant for uh, security assistance to buy uh, pistols for your local cops and your micro military. You're you know you're buying that from Colt or Smith and Wesson or whatever, and you're giving the U.S. government a, a nice little cut. I mean, it's wild these things exist because, you know, you wouldn't think, oh, I, I literally joined the military to become a sales agent for Lockheed. Right. Did you guys see that movie with those pothead Jews who were, like, bidding on government contracts? It's an inspirational story. One with Jonah Hill? <laughs> Is that his name? The curly-haired guy from Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I read a review of it in... I, like the New I watched York it a, a couple months ago. And it was, I mean, it's coming from a leftist, where I was reading it, it was coming from a leftist, leftist light publication, basically kind of a cosmopolitan magazine, New York magazine, I think is where I read it. And it was talking about this upcoming film. And you would expect, again, like these people would be critical of, you know, the the arms business. But of course, because it's got the quirky and fun Jonah Hill in it portraying the plucky Israeli trading in weapons. I think these are the guys that actually managed to smuggle weapons uh, from somewhere in the Caribbean up to Florida using a submarine. Uh, they were very, very excited about this film. I didn't actually watch it. I just read that thing. It's a, it's a I mean, despite its diversions from reality, uh, it is one of those rare examples of a Hollywood film where your Jew is explicitly a Jew. Uh, that's in its credit. It makes it a very, depending on how you watch it. I mean, it is in a certain sense, kind of an anti-Semitic film, but it's based Hill, the fat one, Jonah Hill. So he, he's kind of like, he ends up being kind of like the, the shitty one. And so the other guy, uh, My, miles, uh, teller, I think it was, he's, uh, the one you're supposed to sympathize with, but it's not because you sympathize with him for defrauding the American taxpayer or, you know, contributing to the war machine. It's that he's like, he ends up kind of getting screwed over by his fellow Jew and therefore he's, you know, vindicated himself. And he's there's the one who got a, out of prison. There's a great scene where they're having a business dispute and they go to a diner to, and they bring their rabbi as like a, repeat. yeah, they bring the rabbi to arbitrate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually recommend it to people. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, it's yeah. And the thing that they got gotten for, I mean, it's a it's a perfect example of how the U.S. uses the international arms trade as a political influence tool. They never really quote unquote defrauded the American taxpayer per se. I mean, I'm sure you know to the normal extent. But the thing that they were actually convicted of. Uh, which they do relate in the movie, although they don't uh, relate the fact that they probably murdered their business partner. 
allegedly. Uh, but the uh, the scheme was they found a really good deal on some surplus uh, Chinese ammunition, which of course has been uh, illegal to import uh, to the U.S. or to so really to deal in. So you've got to take the bullets out of the little paper Narinco boxes and put them into some other boxes and pretend that it's from Serbia or whatever. So at I forget how they actually got rolled up, but I mean that was that was the scheme basically that they got um, they got busted for trafficking um, in arms from a country China that it's illegal for Americans to traffic arms from. The, those were their general is, schemes, though, right? It was that they were always they're always trying to manipulate the point of origin, so they were trying to take right. weapons from yeah one place that it yeah right. Which like if you can do that, then you can like make a lot of money evidently. Um, but this is not a rare, uh, occurrence per se. I mean, the, uh, the U S tries to do this in the opposite direction. This is, uh, currently one of the, uh, the big things, uh, that they're concerned with. Um, if, so there's a piece of legislation called ITAR, the, uh, actually I don't know what it stands for. Um, the, uh, international traffic and arms something, um, but it's essentially the framework that regulates how you as a U.S. citizen can uh, import and export uh, uh, anything that can plausibly be weaponry um, or even information about weaponry. So this was a big thing in the, uh, the Cody Wilson defense distributed case, whether blueprints and technical data packages that were effectively public domain, if they could nonetheless try to censor it on the thesis that they're exporting um, these uh, these weapons designs. But the big thing that they're currently concerned with is, uh, I mean, you can go down to your local Bass Pro and you can get some pretty nice uh, night vision equipment. Uh, you might have to special order it. They might not keep it in the shelf, but you can just go and order this stuff. Some of it is very, very, very expensive and very nice. Uh, and it's completely illegal for you to export it to places like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, where it's constantly popping up. There's a few uh, interesting uh, open source intelligence accounts on Twitter, uh, notably Caliber Obscura, um, that uh, document um, what a lot of these insurgents groups are, uh, are using. And they're using a lot of U.S. origin night vision equipment. So the question is, okay, how is this actually getting outside of the country? Like, I mean, you can just stick it in a FedEx box, presumably, and the U.S. does very minimal export screening. So they're trying to figure out what these trafficking networks actually constitute, and it's actually pretty difficult. So they're doing this ridiculous uh, grasping at straws moment where they're trying to subpoena the identity of anyone who's ever downloaded the uh, the app um, that uh, I guess you can integrate with these things, Bluetooth uh, things to record video and, you know, take selfies and whatever. But it's not just the, like the small arms aspect. The U S uses, you know, procurement of American weapons systems as a major tool of uh, political power. I mean, it's effectively you're choosing to affiliate with the, U.S. Empire by making your uh, your military interchangeable 
with the the standards and uh, manufacturers, the spare parts, etc., that the U.S. uses, to the extent where you're also possibly because everything is so software driven now, making yourself uh, vulnerable if the U.S. decides to literally shut off your Air Force one day. I have a I have a few notes on the history of the private arms industry after basically the First World War. Uh, the first person of note was this uh, fellow by the name of Sir Basil Zaharoff. Yeah, he's an interesting character. Uh, I mentioned him in the opening, Adam. He he is a, a Greek whose reason he has that Russian name is because his they when the Turks were slaughtering the Greeks in like mm-hmm. the mid nineteenth century, a bunch of Greeks went to Russia and they, you know they're all Orthodox and everything, and yeah. he ended up with that name. Because he came back and he was a that makes sense something of a Greek patriot, but he didn't. He ended up actually selling some, I think, submarines to the Turks. Yeah, he he. Well, I believe so. He basically what he was doing was in. You mentioned this before, or, or Hank did. I can't remember right now, but I made a mental note that this was uh, the guy who said something to this effect. He basically was selling to both sides, and what he did was it was basically a conflict between the Turks and the Greeks, the longstanding dispute over Cyprus and places like that. Uh, And it goes back even longer than that when the Ottomans controlled Greece uh, for centuries. Uh, But after they gained independence, there was still ongoing conflicts between the new Turkey and the new Greece. And so he was basically selling weapons to both sides. And what he would do was basically give a submarine to one of them and then quickly go over to the other guy and say, hey, you know, I just heard that uh, the enemy just got a submarine. I don't know if you want to do anything about that, but uh, I might be able to get you one if you want one. And so that kind of back and forth was uh, how he made his money. Um, he begrudged by all accounts to, you You know, he really didn't want to sell to the Turks, but that was, and there was a scandal with him. He started out, I think he ended up in Constantinople when he was younger and he had a, uncle or whatever who was his business partner and they were doing some kind of uh, uh, import or export trade whatever it wasn't munitions uh, but he absconded to England and there was a prosecution against him because uncle filed suit that he had defrauded him of such and such amount of money and he, his claim was that it was money he legally had or whatever he, he was always he was like the archetype of the international arms dealer mystery man mm-hmm. and by most accounts he was in fact a Greek patriot and so like you know, I guess not enough of a patriot to not sell some shit to the fucking Turk wretches. But uh, he, as I understand it, what he ended up doing after he sold to the Turks, he went to the Turks' neighbors and was like trying to sell shit to them to use against the Turks. Sure. To kind of, I guess, assuage his his uh, treason. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, so World War II, um, after that, so just jumping ahead from the uh, the first interwar period, basically... After the Second World War, there was kind of like that going on, and then the Cold War quickly took its place. But uh, after the Second World War ended, there was a lot of surplus weaponry, obviously, uh, in newly acquired Allied territories such as Germany. And a lot of the Wehrmacht equipment was basically not allowed to go to the Bundeswehr. And so this stuff was sitting around and being sold off, and actually some of it was resold to the, uh, the newly formed Bundeswehr for the German government. Uh, but this guy by the name of Samuel Cummings, according to uh, this article, Merchants of Death, uh, actually s- uh, claimed to have uh, 90% of the world's private trade in guns. 
That's an astonishing number. I don't, it's for me, it's hard to believe that. Uh, but this was in 1953. That's, that, well, well, that's, that's strange. Because of, the origi- yeah. Well, the yeah, original I mean, this, article was before. Uh, it might be a, like an updated version of it because like the original article came, uh, I think, in the twenties or something. The merge because that was about the well, that was about him, right? So he and he, the other thing to be said about him is he also beat out Maxim uh, here. Maxim uh, bid on I think it was the uh, Austrian government, I believe, because the British obviously adopted and slaughtered a bunch of Arabs with it. I mean, the Maxim was revolutionary because it was no longer crank. You know, it was no longer crank fed because the problem with crank fed is like if you're being like charged by a bunch of Bedouins or whatever, you have to like crank it at the exact correct rate for hmm. the cycle. And uh, yeah. if you're like, you know, being charged by a bunch of Bedouins, like you get nervous and you you cycle at the wrong rate and right. it, it jams. So that was the first time where um, you got the action to feed the uh, to eat the belt. The- it seems like they could just put a motor on it. But uh, I guess this was uh Back no, I mean, it was pretty brilliant. So I mean, and yeah. Maxim himself, Maxim, they were all like, that was Hiram Maxim. I forget all the names of them. I mean, they were like, they were that weird species of like American British Jew. He had, they, he had like British citizenship, but it was one of the other Maxims who created the first silencer. Uh, I forget mm-hmm. what the, there were three, like three great innovations in weapons technology from the Maxims. One, of course, is the Maxim gun, the other silencer. And I forget what the third was. And it was huh. by a different one of the Maxims. Uh, but it was like, and uh, what's his name? Uh, the Greek. He was uh, in partnership with uh, oh, uh, Nordenfeldt. Yeah, he was in partnership with uh, Nordenfeldt because the Nordenfeldt gun was a vastly inferior gun to the Maxim gun. But it ended up getting bought out because uh, he had the Rothschilds and the Vickers behind uh, uh, the Nordenfeldt. Mm-hmm. Last main note I had was uh, after the Cold War ended, in seeing the pattern here, basically after these great wars, there's a lot of weaponry laying around. And so after, oh, the, yeah. Cold, after the Cold War ended, and this is where kind of the Lord of War movie kind of got its uh, inspiration from the, the real person, uh, Victor, I forget his last name, but he, he was a real person. And he ended up uh, getting ensnared in some dragnet in the United States, uh, and uh, but before that, he was making a lot of money, and basically, he was a Russian citizen. He had access to all the the corrupt generals who basically sold him the weaponry, and he was typically taking this stuff to Africa. Uh, and so he would just load up his Ilyushin uh, or Tupolev uh, airplanes and just fly all, fly on over there to drop these things off. And he, um, I don't know how much money he made, but you got to imagine it was in the millions and that's the one where they're giving like the gold plated desert eagles to like the negro warlords yeah 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 Yeah. these kids have no discipline i blame mtv yeah i remember remember that line very clearly (laughs) i saw that movie when it came out i'm a huge some people are aware of this i'm a huge nick cage fan but uh you know that being said, I, I do occasionally. I, do you have anything more to add? I was going to add a no, oh, no, not really. No. Sort of housekeeping note here. Uh, yeah, like I mentioned in the beginning, I've, I've been gone a bit. Uh, I've just I've had some complications, and I will be, as some of you might have noticed, I've, I haven't really been able to engage with anybody online. Anybody send me an email? I'm sorry, I haven't I haven't been able to get to my emails for a long time. Uh, I will be catching up on that stuff. Oh, in, in the, the month to come. So if people do want to get a hold of me, feel free to do so. I'll be around now. And 
in that spirit, I, I do like to occasionally give out because some people ask me for it. I know one listener in particular, um, a friend of ours, is, uh, is also a fan of this, but I, I do like to give a, a occasional uh, recommendations for some some content. People like to watch shit on, on the television. That's cool because I do too. Uh, I think maybe you'll know if, if you're listening, you'll you'll know who you are. But uh, there's one in the subject of the arms trade. There's one uh, series I watched not too long ago that I can safely recommend to most of you is uh, the Night Manager uh, with uh, it's got Hugh Laurie and she's uh, who's that British actor? Uh, I don't remember, but it's based off of John Le Carre. And it's updated John Le Carre. So it's set in like the CIA funded Arab Spring of, you know, recent years, even though the book had been written quite a while ago. And it's about the arms trade. And it's really good because all John Le Carre is good. It's actual uh, deep politics. And it, it gives a pretty good insight. And it's a good drama. It's like a little miniseries, not too long. I think it's like five hours or whatever. It's like five episodes, an hour long. Uh, I recommend Sounds good. Uh, do you guys have any final thoughts on the Merchants of Death? Well, the price of an AK-47, again, according to this article, Merchants of Death, the International Traffic in Arms, uh, the price of an AK-47 has gotten so low because of the sheer high quantity of them available. Uh, the price of an AK-47 in Africa is now $10. If you can get yourself to Africa. Doubt. Yeah, it's big doubt. Well, doubt. And then the big, well, that's that. I don't know exactly what are you can post that up there. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what because we're there's a bunch of different things that are called that, right? I so think like that I think that title's very snappy. Man. It's by an author well, by snappy, Jonathan Gray. But it had a big influence. Like I said, it was an it was an epitaph that was being thrown around by the by the America First people, by the American Patriots uh, in the 1930s. It was a big mm-hmm. it was a big propaganda push to you know point the finger at the correct people as to who are operating against the interests of the American people in lead up to another war which ended up happening so that was a popular term for a while it's it's gone out of favor in that book that i had uh, quoted from extensively that was the second use of it the first was some article i don't know where it appeared on that that greek arms merchant and you might be if you're talking about stuff that's you know post-war that's another version of this too but i don't know if that's the price of an ak-47 what i do know is i can't Mm. buy or I can't import a Russian AK. Uh, so what the fuck's up Thanks, with that? Thanks, Obama. Yeah. <laughs> Give us back our Saigas. <laughs> Is Cody Wilson working on one yet? I mean, you can get like the... So this is, this is, you know, Syria is an interesting example of this. The specific reason that I uh, press X to doubt the, uh, the mythical $10 African uh, AK uh is that and you know it's it's quite possible that in some kind of you know in a on a local scale the prices whatever the price is if it's not leaving the area but there was it's died down a little bit now that uh, the conflict has also died down a little bit but there was a huge huge influx of arms of all sorts into uh, Iraq and Syria um, where in the uh, Syrian civil war was in full swing. That was uh, that was a major destination, particularly for um, the major uh, remaining uh, arms factories in uh, Romania and Bulgaria. Um, 
that was one of the reasons why for the longest time you couldn't really import a uh, you couldn't really find on shelves uh, a uh, a wasser or a uh, an arsenal um, because the U.S. W- had gigantic contracts um, to buy from these foreign uh, arms uh, manufacturers and uh, supply them to the the moderate rebels in a giant air quotes in Syria. And this is there. There's uh, probably a distinction here to be made between kind of the uh, the very licit, highly regulated um, whatever the outcome uh, arms trade the. Um, sort of fully illicit, where it's uh, you know Abdullah FedExing some night vision uh, to his uh, his uncle somewhere, and the kind of quasi illicit, where you know some uh, federal employee shows up uh, at some depot with a a nice uh, briefcase full of cash and uh, walks out with a nice purchase order. Um, Hank, if if any of our listeners are like listening from a you know a, a bathtub filled with money, uh, what, what do you think about that? Um, the American uh, the rifle dynamics, AKs, are those? Those are know? sweet. Yeah. I mean, those are uh, they're they're interesting. They're um they're kind of uh they're more aesthetic objects. I think um, I've never handled one. I'm not that fancy of a guy. Um, everything that I see indicates they're um, sort of uh, massively overfitted for the the sort of inherent qualities of the design. Just get a wasser. That's the default answer everybody gives. Just get a wasser. Why can't I
Thank you.